the Empire Podcast this week, we take heed of Steven Soderbergh's sage advice. If you can put Don Cheadle in your podcast, put Don Cheadle in your podcast. Plus, we travel to Ian McKellen's actual house for an audience with the great man as he reveals his very first app. All that and more on the movie podcast that went to Ian McKellen's house and was deeply disappointed when he didn't say, You shall not pass! Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is a geek queen who's never been to Ian McKellen's house, but she has been to Jensen Ackles house and Jared Padalecki's house, uh, different houses, once they were even in and she had to be really, really quiet. Uh, it's Helen O'Hara. This is absolutely outrageous. My lawyer would like to make it clear that you are joking. Is that, is it, it's libel. It's slander and libel. Prove you pro- wonder, Helen. I've probably been in the vicinity of, of Ian McKellen's house because he lives in East London, doesn't he? Uh, yes. And I've, I've, I think I'm pretty sure I've run past it, actually. I'm pretty sure you have. Yeah. You know, dressed as one of the fellowship, <laughs> trying to attract his attention. Always. Uh, do you, but do you know where Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki? I genuinely live? don't know. I'm, uh-huh. I'm imagining either, either Vancouver where the show shoots or Texas where I think they both live. Oh, yeah. For the record, Helen has absolutely no idea. Her poker face is, is a good one. Uh, next up is our art house guru, a man who once made a pilgrimage to Sir Guy Eisenstein's house. Took him ages to get down the steps. Yeah, because why? No, this is interesting, Chris. You have to continue to introduce me, I forgot. No, it's Phil DeSimlin. Yes, oh, yeah, Sorry, this is, yeah. yeah. Um, We're only 200 or so episodes in. <laughs> it's fine. It's still me. Um, this is a true story. Yeah. Sir Guy Eisenstein actually lived in a bungalow. Um, he, after he finished shooting <laughs> Battleship Potemkin, he was done with steps. Because there'd always be a guy, there was one extra at the back of the, the, the Odessa steps scene who'd always get it wrong. So we'd trudge up and have to give him, <laughs> give him the full, give him the full kind of uh, directorial advice, come back again. Is that true? Every single time. So he was like, nope, that's it. Are you pulling my pod leg? Maybe. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. I well, genuinely, I genuinely I wanted didn't know to believe. Yeah, oh. he could do. He may have lived in a dacha. Are they called dachas? The yeah. Russian, those Russian uh-huh. houses. They're mostly on one one floor. Uh-huh. I think we're getting a bit esoteric, but yeah. Anyway, I, hi. Don't, I don't think we are. I think okay. this is this is. I think starting off with the conversation about where Sergei <laughs> Eisenstein lived. Whether he lived in a two cool up, two house. down, or a or yeah. a bungalow. I think he lived on a ship. You think? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never stray too far from your greatest achievements. Right, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's a very quick one today. We're going to race through all the stuff because, uh, believe it or not, we're being kicked out of our pod booth in about mm. 45 minutes because Tony Hadley from Spandau Ballet is going <laughs> to is going to come in. Ballet. But that was a very Northern Irish way to pronounce that, wasn't it? Ballet. Uh, Spandau Ballet is going to come in uh, to this very, very pod booth and do something. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but you know what? I bet it'll be gold! Tell you what, Chris, um, we've established some barricades... Uh, just outside oh. the podcast booth, and if he wants to get in here, really? he's uh-huh. going to have to go uh-huh. over or round the barricades. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have exhausted all my spare <laughs> There must knowledge. be more. <laughs> all right, okay, let's move on. Uh, because like the cinematic Woodward and Bernsteins uh, that we are, <laughs> we're going to tackle uh, one of your questions in an uncompromising, hard-hitting, speaking truth to power style Uh So this week's question is... Uh, from Jack P. Gregson, with with the Jungle Book tearing up the box office, what non-Disney animated classics would you like to see get the live-action treatment? Call me ridiculous, says Jack P. Gregson, but I still think a live-action Beavis and Butthead do America could go for Oscar gold. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the sort of question that Woodward and Bernstein could get their teeth into. <laughs> Certainly could. It would take them six months, yeah. though. It's it was, you know, yeah, a live-action... 
Beavis and Butthead. That I feel like we're already seeing that play out in the world. So I don't I don't necessarily feel the need for that one personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, have a live action How to Train Your Dragon, and I would demand that someone actually make Toothless and then give them to me at the end. It, it, mm. No, like you know, like yeah. genetic engineering, like it's got to be possible. Oh, you Come mean, on, you don't mean like a, an animatronic? No, no, I mean an actual dragon. Okay, remind me what Toothless does. Uh, he flies. He shoots sort of weird kind of force stuff from from his mouth. Uh, he's very cool, Toothless. He's also okay. cute and adorable. Okay, doesn't he grow up to become like Stylish. a like a big? Well, the right yeah. At the end of the second film, it becomes clear he's kind of like a. I can't remember what they called it. Was it an alpha dragon? But anyway, he's like, like he's going to be like a big king dragon. So he might get large. That's true. Yeah. But like you know, do you have room? Well, no, but he can sleep on the roof. And um, but I mean, there's a park him? nearby. No, You've not really thought this no. through. Though. I have. It's going to be fine. He's going to live in the park. It's going to be fine. And who's going to argue with him? He's a dragon. How much meat does a dragon need to eat? A certain amount. Yeah, but I feel like you know I can just graze him on, I don't know, Tory MPs or something and it'll be fine. Are any Tory MPs going to your house? <laughs> no, he can go hunting in Westminster you're, while I'm at work. You're advocating murder, Helen. No. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, given your hardline stance of Batman, that you can <laughs> in Batman v Superman. I'm not exactly sure you can go around with your pet dragon just snaffling Tory MPs we're off gonna, the We're going to talk more about murder when we talk about Captain America in a couple of weeks, but um, yeah. Okay, well, I think I think you're I think you're dodging the point here, Helen. I think you've uh, revealed your true colors, uh, <laughs> Phil. What, Pretty dark. What, uh, presumably. Um, uh, oh, also, he eats fish. He can just go fishing in the Thames if you're okay. so worried about the Tory MPs. Like, yeah. fine. Okay, there you go. That'll do. Uh, what Jan Svankmeyer movie do you, you want to? <laughs> I don't know that the word Jan and the word Svankmeyer can pop up. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Joke's on you. He's yeah. thinking of Sylvain Chomet. <laughs> I was going to say that actually, potentially. Really? What was the one yeah. that he set in Edinburgh? Oh, um, the magician. The, the magician, the illusionist. The illusionist. The illusionist would be a good one, I think. That's okay. got like that, that. I can see them actually managing to do that. Unlike my other suggestions, <laughs> okay. uh, a town called Panic, <laughs> <laughs> um, with Warhorse uh, as horse, uh-huh. ideally. And uh-huh. um, what about those Disney films that are part animation and part live action? Well, the question specifically, non yeah, non Disney. Wow, Don, Don. Can Mr. I change it? Sorry, yeah, Mister Skim, read the script before we go in. <laughs> How about Miyazaki? Yeah, well, I was going to say Princess Mononoke would be a Ooh, yeah. good one. I'd also say Howl's Moving Castle. Because Diana Wynne-Jones, British fantasy author, absolutely brilliant one, wrote the book. Um, why don't we reclaim that for live action and make, like, preferably most of her books? Right. Just a suggestion. Just throwing it out there. Mm, okay. What about, I know we've said no Disney. Well, we haven't. <laughs> Jack P. Gregg. Sorry, has. Jack. Um, but I'm saying... Pixar wasn't always owned by Disney. What about mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro's Monsters, Inc.? Would watch. Would be good, wouldn't it? Would be terrifying. Guillermo Monsters, del Toro's but how would you Monsters make those monsters not terrifying? Oh, if it was like I mean, Doug Jones coming out of the wardrobe dressed as the pale man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd fill your, you'd fill your canisters. Quick sharp. <laughs> that's that's the only thing I'd, yeah, that's not the only thing I'd fill. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be amazing. What about that, I, I really like that. Swap the animation and the live action bits of... Bedknobs and broomsticks. <laughs> so you had live action animal football matches, and everything else was in animation. This is you're that, on the roll here. Ooh, that would be you good. Know. I would I watch that. Thinking outside the box. That'd be good. So it'd be real footballers playing a real football match. Real footballers playing against animals. Okay, that'd be interesting. Jamie Fardy against a yelling chat shit kid bang with a hippo. <laughs> I, I literally have no idea what you're talking about now. That's no, so. a topical football reference. Oh, so I, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Please don't explain it. Let's move on. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's very terrible. But that's, that's amazing that you, you cited those because I, I actually didn't think that you knew your pick's arse from your pick's elbow. So that's, Ooh. that's good. Very good. I thought yes. I had to get it in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about uh, when the wind blows? Oh. Uh, oh. An uplifting... No. You know. Isn't that threads? Okay, yeah. Can, <laughs> threads, can, we, can we just... We may have told this story on the podcast before, but Sam Toy, formerly of this parish, yeah. once decided of a Saturday night to get us all over to his house to watch a movie together, yeah. um, which is a lovely way to bond as a group and get to know each other. Except Sam put on threads, <laughs> which is <laughs> the most depressing possible <laughs> film about <laughs> nuclear war. It was a Bill Bailey threads double Bill, wasn't it? Well, we had to put on Bill Bailey afterwards because we were also depressed. We couldn't move. Well, I thought Bill Bailey was before. No, it was afterwards. As I so recall, then we had okay. to, we basically ate chocolate pavlova, which was delicious. Thank you, Sam, and uh, and ate Bill Bailey until any of us were able to, you know, muster up the will to carry on. Oh my lord! Oh, yeah, yeah I've never heard that before. Threads, in case you don't know what it is, is a sort of nineteen. I think it was nineteen eighty four uh, docudrama. Directed weirdly enough by Mick Jackson, who would go on to direct L.A. Story and Volcano, uh, both equally depressing <laughs> in different ways. And uh, it's LA a docudrama stories. about. No, I like L.A. Story. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a docudrama about the uh, essentially the end the end of the world, nuclear Armageddon being unleashed on Britain, specifically Sheffield, and uh, it's 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 super it's depressing, lot, it's, Chris. It's, it's super fun. It's super fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. As Reese Dinsdale, uh, who played John Thor's son in the 1980s uh, sitcom Home to Roost, uh, is one of the, the people who's like just destroyed by radiation and whatnot. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's not a fun not a fun watch. So put it together with Peter Watkins, The War Game, mid 60s again docudrama, or the 19 uh, I think it's the same around the same time actually an American sort of sort of mini series type thing called The Day After. Uh, oh, yeah. which is uh, equally horrifying. Hey, nuclear weapons can be fun, kids. <laughs> so uh, we were talking yeah. about adorable oh, animated yeah. films that we'd like to see more of. And then I come crashing in <laughs> going, yeah, no, old couple slowly dying. Uh, no, that would be... But I can imagine that would be... You get Jim Broadbent and Melda Staunton oh, putting God. together... No, I, I can't. Can, no, please, I can't. I can't bear it. You never know what might happen. Two things might happen. You get an Oscar-winning, heart-rending drama out of it, or they might become superheroes. Okay. Well, now I'm back on board. Jim All Broadway right. Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no, come on. But given where they hide in the event, they would be like mattress people. That would be their superpowers. Mattress would be mattress, mattress powers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or one of them would be the mattress, and one would be the wall. Can we uh, end that that would be their powers. Yeah, okay. Uh, so. <laughs> I haven't got one. I'm <laughs> just hoping hoping that someone might come up with something. Well, the, the, um, there are, you know, we haven't even mentioned you know, the DreamWorks. Well, you've mentioned DreamWorks. You mentioned uh, How to Train Your Dragon. But there's so many uh, great animations over the last few years. Would you like to see Wallace and Gromit somehow brought to, hmm. brought to real life? No. Not really. Know? I love Who's it as the, it is. Who could possibly have the overbite to play uh, <laughs> Wallace? It would, be, it would be tricky. Chicken Run? Chicken Run, you know, with actual Mel Gibson. If you could cast these things with the real, with the original cast, okay, that'd be fun. So Mel Gibson, yeah. is knowing a everything chicken. we know about Mel Gibson now, wearing a chicken costume <laughs> and running around. You're, you're suggesting the lo-fi approach, then. You're not suggesting the Jungle Book type. Yeah, that's what I'm you're really suggesting a chicken, a literal chicken suit. A literal chicken suit, yeah. Okay, well that that does actually have merit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's. That's that's the answer. <laughs> that's it. Chicken run. Chicken run. Chicken run. All With right, Mel well. Gibson. You got a little Jack, gibbo. There you go. Mel giblet. Right. 
if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, you're right, Phil. Here comes Tony Hadley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In a chicken costume. He's misheard, but we have to, we have to make something of him now. <laughs> he's insisting. Um, <laughs> he's got the Kemps with him, and they don't look happy. Um, okay, so if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, then you can get in touch with us via a number of ways. Uh, we're on Twitter, uh, where we're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook, where we are at Empire Magazine. And we're on email, as Jack P. Gregson knows, because he emailed us that question. Uh, ah. Podcast at empireonline.com. C-O-M. I have a question for the Empire Podcast. Okay, great. <laughs> just very quickly, I just covered last night that I moved into the, a flat that was previously occupied by a film star of an <gasps> actress. Oh. Are you willing so, to reveal the name I of that actress? I don't think I'm allowed. I don't know, because my question is, mm-hmm. I've got her Barclays bank statement on my doormat. <laughs> what should I do with it? Well, uh, we follow each other on Twitter, so I can DM her if, if you oh, want okay. to let her know. I was going to say Twitter might be the answer. <laughs> okay. There you go. Thanks for answering Wow. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking what of movie star encounters, two people in this pod booth saw the same super hot, super dreamy celebrity this week. It's true. I'm not a celebrity, Helen. Come on. Star? Yeah, I'll take that. No, you didn't. But oh, right. Okay. You, Chris, I see what you, mean. You, yes. you saw the Sorry. person. I saw for, the person. Yeah. Sorry. I thought you were referring to me as a no. super hot, super dreamy. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you'd be excused for using those words. Uh, would I be? Would I be? <laughs> I think um, so. Hmm. Anyway, uh, so yeah, is Oscar Isaac stalking the Empire team? This is the question. Yes. Okay. It's the only answer. It's the, he wants to be on the podcast. He wants to be on the podcast. He wants to be on the podcast. He missed his chance for that little Force film that came out. We did him for Lewin Davis. He wants to come back. Him, but obviously, you know, once you've had a taste, yeah, you just want to keep double dip. <laughs> Where um where did you see him? Different places. I saw him in Soho, sitting yeah. outside a Japanese restaurant, like a normal having lunch. person, like a normal person, yeah, and not like the, the greatest of us all. Um, I saw him yesterday in uh, Neil Street near the office, uh, and uh, weirdly, I only got a glimpse, but he was in full apocalypse regalia, so it was easy to pick him <laughs> up. No, it was he had a he had a don't recognize me hat on, but he had an Oscar Isaac face, so it was kind of tricky. Not yeah. to recognise him. And I kind of think, okay, you saw him in the mid-afternoon. Mm-hmm. I saw him in the middle of the afternoon. Shouldn't you be, like, you know, on a, in a galaxy far, far away, dude? Maybe he's stuff? shooting knights or something at the moment. Maybe he is shooting knights. You know, there's two disguises. He's got either a Don't Recognise Me hat and an Oscar Isaac face, or he can do full prosthetics, but he wears a hat with Oscar Isaac written on it. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how I saw him? With my Oscar Isaacs. Chris, your eye bags aren't that bad. Uh, right, should we have a guest? Sure. Okay, because we're running out of time. Tony Hadley's banging on the glass. Uh, this week's first guest is a knight of the realm, a wizard, a master of magnetism, a 93-year-old detective, and a bit of a Shakespeare buff. So much so, in fact, that he has helped produce an app called Heuristic Shakespeare, which aims to render the bard more palatable for those who'd rather exit Pursued by Bear than sit through one of his plays. Uh, the guest in question is, of course, Sir Ian McKellen. And in a podcast first, Nick DeSemlian and I we're invited into Ian's lovely London home to talk about the app and sundry other issues. And yes, his house is very, very nice. In fact, that's where we began. Enjoy the interview. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Ian McKellen. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to be with you. Excellent. Well, I say we're joined in the Empire Podcast. We've uh, invited ourselves over to your house. Uh, for the first time ever, we're recording a podcast mm. live from someone else's house. Thank How you for are you enjoying it. It's very, very nice. Good. I have to say, we're, uh, what, is this a study that we're in at the moment? What is this room? 
I call this the parlour. It's on the ground floor and it's got the advantage of looking right over the River Thames, which is my back garden, really. Okay. It's not a bad back garden to have. Uh, You have lots of different portraits and paintings on the wall. I, I don't like to surround myself with pictures of myself so you won't find very many but there is um, there are two portraits by uh, Nick Castle the New Zealand painter and he's done me as Gandalf and also as um, Estragon in uh, Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot. You told me last year that Anthony Hopkins gave you one of his paintings have you got that hanging up somewhere? I've got two paintings that uh, Anthony gave me when I went to visit him in uh, California where he lives and spends a lot of his time writing music and and, and painting paintings and uh, they've come from deep in his soul. They're very dark and and rather (laughs) dangerous. They're not in this room. (laughs) Is this room a bit lighter? It's not quite Mm. ready for Anthony Mm. Hopkins' Mm. paintings quite yet. (laughs) You've produced an app about Shakespeare. Mm. Can you explain exactly what this app is? Shakespeare wrote 37 plays 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. It is amazing that they're still being performed, not just in the UK, but across the world, often in translation, of course. Most people's first contact with Shakespeare is perhaps being given the script of the play. And to show that to somebody who doesn't know anything about acting is almost as unhelpful as giving me, who knows nothing about reading music, (laughs) a score you know, the yeah. notes down on the page. Yeah. I can't read it. It doesn't yeah. make sense to me. I can only understand that when someone who does know about music has learnt the music and then sings or plays an instrument. Well, it's the same with Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Don't expect, unless you're a really de- dedicated actor, to understand the script on the page. It was never put down on the page for you. It was put down on the page for actors to learn. And reading the script of any play is a problem, even for professional actors. And heuristic Shakespeare uh, is designed to provide an answer. By following the text and watching the actors read the words out loud on your iPad is like having your own private performance always to hand. And I think it'll appeal to students at whatever level they happen to be, as much as to theatre goers who just want to delve more deeply into the play. So basically you've got on the app, you've got the words of the play, and they're moving up, and as they're moving up, the actors along the top are speaking the lines directly uh, okay. to you. And uh, you can stop the text whenever you want. Uh-huh. If there's something a bit complicated you don't understand, you'll find a whole range of notes at whatever level you happen to be. So if you're um, meeting Shakespeare for the first time, there will be notes that are appropriate for that. But if at the other end of the scale you're studying Shakespeare at university as a special subject, there will be more complicated notes for you to delve into. And then there's the photographs of productions and there's bits of me talking about The Tempest, which is the first play that we've done. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Bate, the Shakespeare scholar par excellence, who talks about the play from his point of view. And so it's it's better than an introduction it's halfway towards the ideal which is for you to go to a theater where the tempest is actually playing (laughs) and then you get the full experience but this is much better than trying to struggle on your own or going around the classroom reading all the lines and getting bored this will hopefully bring the play off the page and into your ear how did it come about how did you get involved with it because obviously you're involved with this bfi shakespeare celebration at the moment is this part of that or is this something separate Ever since I first was asked to study Shakespeare at school for O-level and later at university when I read English literature, the problem of reading a text uh, has been Mm. difficult. It's not like reading a novel. A novel is meant to be read. Mm. A poem is meant to be read and hopefully spoken out loud. But a play 
is not meant to be read. It's meant to be witnessed. It's meant to mm. be heard out loud. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be experienced. And what you have in the text is just the raw material for that process. And so I've often said, don't bring Shakespeare into the classroom. Take the kids out of the classroom to go and meet Shakespeare in the theatre. That, that's where they're most likely to discover that Shakespeare is a wonderful source of entertainment and wisdom. And thinking about it, Richard Longcrane, who directed me in the film of Richard III, an adaptation from a stage production that I'd done at the National Theatre, we realised that perhaps this was the 21st century version of trying to read the play all on your own. Mm. No, you're not on your own. You're in the company of actors who've been there before and will help you. So Richard Longcrane's involved as well. The Tempest is the first play you're doing, and it's it's you. Derek Jacobi's on there as well. Uh, what other actors are you are you looking to get involved? Well, uh, the, all all the actors have I think been involved in actual productions of the play, so they knew, okay. know it very well. So you're getting the experience of maybe ten other productions of the play that all mm. come together on this one occasion when we read it to you. Francis Barber is there and uh, many others. We picked The Tempest because it was the last play Shakespeare wrote. Okay. And when two friends of his who'd worked with him on the stage collected together all the plays that he'd written, this was called The First Folio, mm -hmm. the play that they decided to put first in that book was The Tempest. So we thought we'd start with it as well. <laughs> Excellent. One of our colleagues, Helen, is on a mission to watch every Shakespeare play Live Is that something you've done? Have you seen every, every single one in a theatre? Well, Shakespeare wrote 37 plays, some of them by himself, and some of them, oddly, he contributed to. Seems an odd idea, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of people should write the same play, but a lot of people write EastEnders, you know, and Coronation Street. It's not one person. When I did Coronation Street, I had 10 episodes, and each of them was written by a different person. So it can be done. Anyway, 37 plays. And have I seen them all? No, I haven't. I haven't ever seen Timon of Athens, and there must be others too, and some I've seen very, very infrequently. As an actor, I've been in about 15 of them, but it's probably too late in the day to start saying, oh, I want to be in all the plays on stage at some <laughs> point. But not too late to, like uh, your friend Helen, to try and see them all as an audience. I'm guessing Timon of Athens is not put on as regularly as, as Hamlet or... No, that, that, yes, there are some plays that are more popular than others. For many, many years, the, the Merchant of Venice was a play that people didn't like to do because they felt it was anti-Semitic, because the character of Shylock is a rather nasty man who happens to be a Jew. That doesn't mean to say that Shakespeare thought all Jews were nasty. No, not at all. There are a couple of very nice Jews in that play, as a matter of fact. But there were times when you couldn't do that play in New York, for example, where a lot of Jews live. The plays are as you read them and as you see them, and uh, other plays are infrequently done, like Henry VI, Part Three. But occasionally you get productions of Henry VI, Part One, Two, and Three mm. that you can see on adjacent nights, preceded by Henry V. Preceded by Henry IV, parts one and two, the history plays. But it would be a lucky person who in their life saw all the plays. Yeah. There must be a, a Timon of Athens hardcore devotee who's out there somewhere <laughs> just saying that's the best one. There may well be people who think Timon of Athens is their favourite play. It's a good, exciting, disturbing story. Is the plan to get through all 37 plays ultimately on the app? Yes, we are ambitious. And as we think The Tempest has worked so well, we've no doubt that it will work with other plays too. Mm -hmm. But that will rather depend on whether people decide to download heuristic Shakespeare, The mm -hmm. Tempest. And if they do, it means we'll have enough money to do other plays. So that's certainly our intention.
Fantastic, fantastic. And what was your first exposure to Shakespeare? What was the first play you went to or saw? Uh, my family, my family, when I was a kid, went to the theatre a great deal, and so they saw Shakespeare. They also saw Agatha Christie. We didn't make any distinction, really. Uh, did we enjoy it? Was it a good production? Those are the sort of questions we asked. So Shakespeare, for me, never became a frightening prospect. I just saw Twelfth Night, I think was the first play I saw, a thoroughly rambunctious comedy, and I followed that up shortly by seeing Macbeth, I suppose when I was about nine years old. And a nine-year-old can get something out of uh, Macbeth. It's an exciting thriller. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next? It's very much that sort of play. But it wouldn't be enough to say, I've seen Macbeth, I don't need to see it again. It's rather like my cousin when she was getting married. I said, what do you want? Would you like some towels? She thought a bit. She said, no, no, we've got a towel. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can't just see Hamlet once and think yeah, that's it. Because there will be, as each generation goes along, young actors will, will want to have a crack at mm. um, playing Shakespeare's uh, most famous play, perhaps. So Shakespeare then just became a part of my life, and it wasn't yeah. a difficulty to me. And when we, I found I was suddenly studying as an academic subject at school, I thought, oh, well, this is easy. It's rather like if uh, you, you like playing soccer, suddenly you go and read soccer at O-level. It, 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 uh, <laughs> I wish that had been available to me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, I might have done slightly better. You never know. I once saw Macbeth performed entirely in the dark. Have you ever seen anything like that? A Shakespeare play with a gimmick. It does sound a gimmick to see a play in the dark. However, it means that you're listening to it. Mm-hmm. And if you're an audience, that's what you're primarily doing, audio. You're not a spectator or a viewer. Mm-hmm. But it seems a bit perverse because uh, if someone's speaking, I'd like to see uh, what their face <laughs> looks like because they may not be telling the truth. And how can you judge that unless you can read their body language and so on? Uh, you know, Shakespeare's a bit like life. You know, it's not always what it appears to be. Mm-hmm. So perverse not to see the actors. However, you can enjoy uh, Shakespeare on radio enormously Mm -hmm. and your imagination works. To enjoy Shakespeare, you don't have to see everything. You you, you can hear everything. When when Macbeth comes on at the beginning of that play and says his first line, so foul and fair a day I have not seen, you don't have to be on a stage in which it's raining. You don't have to see clouds (laughs) scudding across the back. Take his word, it's a foul day. It's in the words that everything will be carried. And Mm -hmm. to that extent, uh, Shakespeare is different from most playwrights. It begins with the words. Mm. In terms of the app side of it, are you an app guy? Do you have an iPhone? Are you up to date with the latest technology or or not? You're speaking to the man who invented blogging. Of course. Of course, yeah. Mm. (laughs) uh, Do you get royalties for that? (laughs) In 2000, the year 2000, the internet had only just become available to us and the idea of sending a regular diary uh, downloaded onto my website for anyone to read whilst we were filming Lord of the Rings in New Zealand was the way I made contact with people and inadvertently uh, I think was the first certainly the first actor to do a regular online diary which I called um, e-post at the time yes somebody else um, did the same thing and called it blogging and uh, the rest is not history. <laughs> and you're on Twitter? Well, yes, I'm, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram and so on. And these are just ways of, of, of me being able to tell people what I'm up to professionally. I am not proficient with um, mobile phones, etc. Look at my hands. They're large. The keyboards simply are not made for me. I press one key and, and, and three different letters come up and, and I'm constantly frustrated. 
However, I find heuristic Shakespeare, The Tempest, one of the easiest things. No, seriously, one of the easiest things to work. You just press the thing and it starts off and you press something else and it all works. So it, it's a miracle to me that, uh, and perhaps a, a lesson that with a bit of diligence I could enter the 21st century <laughs> completely. So this is the app for people with large fingers. It doesn't matter how, <laughs> yes. how big they are. It'll work. I spoke to you last year, Ian, for The Dresser, and oh, yes. you mentioned at the end that you were thinking about writing a memoir. Is that something yes. that's happening? I long since thought that um, if anyone wanted to know anything about my career and the, and the jobs I'd done, the plays I'd been in, the films I'd made, the television series, it would all be available to them. And it is uh, on, on my website. And, and I've, I've, I've written about, I think, every job I've ever done. And, and there are photographs and cast lists and reviews and all sorts of related material. And that is longer than any printed autobiography could possibly be. And it's constantly changing as I update it, uh, which a book can't be. So when I was asked to write the story of my life as a memoir, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll relent and do what I'd always thought I'd done better online. And so it happened. I put aside nine months to write the book. And after one month, decided I didn't want to write it. It didn't seem to me as uh, efficient a way and an interesting way of doing it as, as the modern way, which is to have film available, clips, uh, photographs, long reference points, details that just simply wouldn't fit into a book. So I've uh, gone back to what I always thought was the best way of having an autobiography, and that's to have it online. Did you, I have to ask, spend the advance on, on, the, on the book beforehand uh, <laughs> well that is the problem if you get an advance it is only an advance and you have yeah. to uh, you have to return it you have to retreat and give it back but uh, I, I hadn't really got to that point okay. uh, did you uh, did you think of a title uh, no and that is probably significant that I couldn't think of what to call it so that probably meant there wasn't a book to be written <laughs> <laughs> It always puts me in mind, there's a, there's a great, and I know it's not real, but I, I wish it were, there was a great Photoshop of you in a t-shirt that says, I'm Gandalf and Magneto, oh, yeah. get over it. That could almost be the title of your autobiography, should it ever come Oh, to I pass. see, yes. Yeah. Well, no, the t-shirt I was actually wearing said, some people are gay, yeah. get over it. And um, perhaps the people who amended it didn't realize how important the original message uh, was. So, <laughs> well, that's the disadvantage of putting things out into the ether they can be they become very public property absolutely you are i think one of the most impersonated people really uh, one of the most impersonated actors really around a lot of people do impressions of you clearly you haven't heard many impressions of you but there's one guy and unfortunately i can't remember his name an american young man who does an impression of me which i can recognize and if someone imitates you 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 often look baffled because you can't quite, <laughs> you can't your ear doesn't receive it as other people receive it or at least you can't relate it to your own what you hear of your own voice anybody will tell you that but it's um i wish i could remember his name but he he's very good and very funny mimicry is a very mm. useful uh, talent but i think it is a talent i'm not sure it's something you can learn Anthony Hopkins, for example, is, is a wonderful mimic and conversation with him is like talking to three or four people because <laughs> other voices will come in deadly accuracy. Now, I wish I could do that. I don't. I'm not very good at accents for the same reason. I don't really have that ear. I do think it's a failing. But there we go. There are a few voices I could do, but, uh, you know, they amuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Without asking you to do them, can you name? No, you're who not. You do? I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do. I know you're not no, a performer. You're not a performing monkey. If you listen to this voice, this is a voice you don't know. It's, it's an actor called Wilfred Lawson, who I knew when I was a younger man. He <laughs> sounds as if he had too much to drink, but. Uh, 
There we are. That's quite a good impression of, of, of Wilfred Lawson, but you don't know who he is, so uh, it doesn't make much sense to you. Uh, oh, the John Gielgud speaks rather like that. He was an actor of my youth who I really appreciated. And, well, that's rather crude. Everybody does John Gielgud. Do you do a Patrick Stewart? Now, you see, well, he's Yorkshire. I'm Lancashire. So. <laughs> and the, the film of Richard III, which Laurence Olivier made, he said he based the voice for that villain on the impersonations that he'd heard older actors do of the great actor-manager Sir Henry Irving, the first man to be knighted, as the first actor to be knighted. So there is a tradition of, of uh, bringing imitations right into the heart of people's acting, but on the whole I use variations of my own voice. So uh, you're doing Beauty and the Beast next year. Yeah, yes. Did that require a French accent? Uh, no, not from me. Beauty and the Beast is a, a French story. Mm-hmm. La Belle et la Bête. And Belle is, is French. And uh, Emma Watson plays her magnificently, but she does it with an English accent. And so as someone in the Beast's court, I, I too have an English accent. But um, Ewan McGregor, playing La Lumière, I suppose because of his name, does have a French accent. Don't ask me why. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm but proud. I've seen I've seen the film. I'm one of the very few people who have in its current state, and it's very exciting. And in my view, surpasses even the uh, animated version that it's based on. I'm very intrigued by that film. I'm very uh, intrigued to see what it looks like when it's finished. Will we see you, or will we see a clock, or when the prince is turned into the beast at the outset of the story? Mm. All his staff in the castle are bewitched and, and turned into objects. Mm-hmm. That's when we first meet them. Okay. So, yes, it's Cogsworth the clock who mm-hmm. you meet. It's Lumiere the candlestick that you meet. At the end of the story, when the spell is happily lifted and the beast returns to being a beautiful prince, then the clock turns into a major domo and then you see me. Okay. But briefly... Uh, And I think it's quite fun at the end of the film to see the actors who've been doing the voices all the way through, because they include Stanley Tucci and uh, Mm -hmm. Emma Thompson and the great Audra MacDonald. So, uh, yeah, it's a film full of delights. And I think you you sang a little snippet of it when you were on the podcast last time. So, I mean, this is a project that's been in the works for a very long time. So you were were impressed by what you saw. Oh, yes. I, I... Most of my work on the film was done in a sound studio matching my voice to the animated character. I only really got onto the set for one glorious day for for the last scene when the characters have all come to life again and are dancing so and and joining in the song so i I, I did have to sing a bit i I had to dance a bit I had to act a bit <laughs> did my best in all those different <laughs> departments. I just want to ask about x men because Gandalf is finished for you. Unless Peter Jackson somehow decides he will make another movie in Middle-earth. It isn't, that seems, brother, that seems I don't think it's quite up to Peter. He may be quite relieved with the situation, which is that there are other stories that involve Gandalf mm-hmm. that Tolkien wrote, primarily in a book called The Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Nobody has the rights to turn that into a film. Before right. he died, Tolkien, the author, had sold the rights to the films that have now been made, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but... There are no rights available to do anything else by talking, and so it doesn't really arise. Mm-hmm. Now, X-Men, of course, the stories roll on just as the comics rolled on. Mm-hmm. The stories swing between the future and the present and the past, and at the moment, they, the filmmakers are more interested in young Magneto rather than the old one that I play. So Michael Fassbender is the beneficiary. 
<laughs> but he better watch out because he'll be old one day and there's some other upstart will come take over. But who knows, maybe one day they'll decide, no, no, we'd like to have a look at Magneto when he's really old and I'll be ready. A sort of Mr. Holmes version of Magneto. There you go. It yes. could be. It could be yes. quite interesting. Yes. It's just I think one of the last times we spoke, you said that you had maybe potentially been sounded out by the X Men producers to be in another movie after Days of Future Past. Ah, uh, well, that would have been the situation when I said it. I, but mm-hmm. things change. I, I haven't. I haven't had any uh, nice phone calls saying when I come over to Vancouver or Toronto, which is where those films are made in mm-hmm. Canada. So I guess at least for the time being, um, that's it. Hang up the helmet, uh, which could be a name for your autobiography. Uh, we should let you. We should let you go. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, should we throw another couple of autobiography titles? Oh, we came up with a title for your autobiography in oh, the car you. on the what, way over. Uh, what was it? This might reignite your interest. It may not. Fifty Shades of Gandalf the Grey. Oh, oh, witty, witty. witty. <laughs> but what does it mean? What, what Why only mean? fifty? Why not a hundred? You stop. Yes, I don't know what I'd call it. I, I don't know. I think something modest like if you're interested. <laughs> I think people would be I think people would be but uh, we shall see we shall see so it's definitely not going to happen uh, not during my lifetime no <laughs> okay <laughs> okay it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for letting us into your right. house no lovely to see thank you. you thank you take care uh, should we have some movie news yes um, one of the things that um, you know in typical late breaking Hollywood movie news fashion at Brooke after the podcast went up last week was the news that uh, James Cameron has announced four Avatar sequels and not three, as we had all been conditioned to expect. I'd been, certainly been priming myself for three, and now four sent me into a spiral. I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, now, the internet has reacted, as is as wont, uh, with cynicism mm-hmm. to this. Going, that's a, that four. Who wants to sit through four Avatar sequels? What's that about? Um, but don't write James Cameron off. That's, that's what we've, we've, surely that's what we've learned by now over the last. Yeah, you would think. I mean, you know, years. when was the last. James Cameron feature film that wasn't worth watching. What the Piranhas? I mean, I even even then, that's got it's got flying killers. Actually, to be honest, I haven't seen Piranha too. Um, <laughs> but I imagine I imagine it's brilliant. So you know, you've got to you've got to give this a a little bit of a of leeway. I think you know yeah. we can't we can't you can't dismiss James Cameron of all people out of hand. Um, I, and I still have a big soft spot for Avatar. I'm the one person I think who does. Um, and also, you know, let's not forget that, you know, most of the highest grossing films, all these billion dollar, dollar grocers that we keep hearing about nowadays, most of them you adjust for inflation and they fall off the list. Avatar doesn't. Avatar was a genuine phenomenon, mm-hmm. that, phenomenon. Is, that remains, thank you, that remains in the top five films of all time, even if you adjust for inflation. That's pretty astonishing. So um, I think he's, he's, you know, if he's got more story to tell, and he does have a way with a story, he knows a story. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like uh, in Cameron we trust until proven otherwise. A lot of people were kind of going, oh, come on, can he do something original? What's he doing four more Avatar sequels for? Doesn't he have enough money? I mean, yeah, the guy's a billionaire. So clearly he's not doing this for money, right? So he's doing this because he has a story he wants to tell. No one criticises George R.R. Martin for writing more. Uh, you know, every ever finishes. And in Game fact, if he, if, he, if he doesn't if he, keep writing them, then we'll criticise him. <laughs> but why should we be annoyed with a creative person for wanting to create, for wanting to build his own universe rather than latching onto Star Wars or latching onto Marvel or, you know, Terminator's ruined for him. That's a desolate landscape. Other people have ruined that over the years. It's, it's going to be very hard, very hard for him to do that. Alien isn't his. 
because you know really really scott's doing that so why not he has his universe he you know he's established it already to great effect you know i've i've cooled on avatar over the years but hopefully this you know four more movies sam worthington's happy isn't he yes <laughs> i mean his agent is taking the rest of the week off <laughs> yeah. i mean you know there's a burger king missing a cook but Sam, oh, what? Oh, Chris! That's just a you joke, monster! Just a joke. In Australia, Australia doesn't have Hungry Jacks, <laughs> not Burger King. But anyway, I don't think four is enough. You want more? No, four is enough. <laughs> four is five. How many? Wait, five. Five in total. Yeah. I think he's at the point of losing count. <laughs> I just think he likes being in New Zealand a lot, and maybe, maybe feels this is where he needs to be. You know, he's obviously got more. Mm. more social consciousness in his movies than ever before and he feels like Avatar is a really good way to reflect the world back on itself um, I'd be interested to watch Avatar 2 alongside Avatar 1 it's a lot of blue but just to see because you know people have gone to see The Jungle Book and mm. things have moved forward in leaps and bounds in the in the VFX space I think we can um, trust him to move forward with that though of course that's what I mean I, oh, think, yeah. I think the look of it will be, will be di- divergent from the first one in quite a profound way and also you know bearing in mind Planet of the Apes has gone out and used his sort of performance capture technology in external locations yeah. interesting to see what he does there you He's- know how this moves forward technologically I think at the very least James Cameron being immersed in Avatar world for another decade is going to push things forward for other filmmakers. That's true. Um, and I think that's going to be interesting to see. Um, how he exploits new technologies is going to be interesting to see as well. The story of the first film seemed a bit rote to a lot of people, mm-hmm. but it was a visual experience, but a sort of second to none, really. So I, I think as an event movie, the next one's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be key. The next one has to, he has to nail it. And then I think it'll create a bit more. Well, of course, yeah. if he doesn't nail it, I mean, this is the thing. I don't think this movie's going to flop. I'm not sure it'll it'll have the same cultural impact as the first movie and make 2.9 billion around the world. But you know, it's it, I think when when it comes out, when we see a trailer for Avatar two, we might be reminded of why we loved the first one, and then mm. then uh, people will want to go and see it. But if it doesn't work, if the second one doesn't work, and you're committed because he's filming them all at the same time, he's he's announced that he's mm. going to film them all at the same time. So he'll be filming bits from four at the same time, sort or five at the same time as two, and it's going to be very confusing. Um, uh, and he's also said he's going to do what apes did and yeah. take people out and actually film around New Zealand, and so he doesn't have to, you know, maybe he can film on Sam uh, Neil's vineyard. That'd be Ooh, great. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting. But if two doesn't quite work or it doesn't stick the landing, no. then what are they going to do for three? So it's 2018, 2020, 2022, and then twenty twenty three. Well, you can what? always go back and fine tune. I mean, they did that. One suspects a little bit for things like yeah. The Hobbit, which shot back to back and then suddenly had some. Excitement added in later on down the line. Oh, yeah, we, should, we should put some excitement in, guys. <laughs> yeah. There's um, something missing from the film. Yeah, and he's got you know he's got interesting writers working with him. You know, usually he takes writing uh, the, the writing job for himself. Hmm. If he's brought people in, it's presumably because his his ambitions are that much bigger. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. Four more Avatar uh, movies. Uh, what next? What should we talk about? There? Oh yeah, Jurassic World. Jurassic World. Yeah. So Jurassic World Two or Jurassic Park Five. Or Jurassic Five, as some wag on Twitter said, um, has got a new director. It's not Colin Trevorrow. We know he's going to be doing Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, and Juan Antonio Bayona, uh, who is the brilliant director behind uh, the Orphanage, which is great, the Impossible, which I think is great, um, and A Monster Calls, which will be out later in the year, which I hope is going to be fantastic. Uh, is the director? Um, what, do we, what do we make of this? I think that's a good call, isn't it? I think we're we're pretty excited by what he's done so far. It's kind of. Uh 
being incredibly cynical for a minute, it's kind of nice to see someone who has been working his way up through numerous films get a big film. Rather than just one and Rather than just one and in. Yeah, because I think it gives you a bit more of a sense that this person has a style and a story and a... You know, an, uh, an, an approach that they're that they're confident of, and that the studio is confident of. Not that uh, Trevorrow seemed particularly daunted by the scale of the project, but just it's um, I don't know, it just seems fairer. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like everything Bayona's done so far. I can't wait to see a Monster Calls because um, that was an incredible book. So I just mm. hope he's done done great work stuff with that. And you know, where do we go from here? Is this is this really going to be the sort of you know, dinos in the jungle kind of stuff that we heard rumoured. I believe they're coming to London town. Really? Like one of our dinosaurs is missing? That's the rumour. Wow. I got really excited about that. That was on Christmas one, uh, on TV one Christmas when I was little. And I just saw the title, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. I'm like, this is going to be the greatest film ever. And it is not. So hopefully this will be better. (laughs) Oh, I've, I've no, it's spot. not. I have a soft spot for one of our dinosaurs. I, I thought there were going to be dinosaurs, like doing stuff. No, they're just going to come to bones. London and Ugh. bust that dinosaur skeleton out of the Natural History Museum. Yeah. That's the plot of Jurassic World <laughs> 2. And yeah. I think Juan Antonio Bayona is the right guy for the job. I guess they've looked at his career and thought, well, he's really expert at marrying um, intimate beats with big spectacle. Mm. I mean, The Impossible showed that. The, the orphanage show that he can do intimacy with a genre twist that's got texture and 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 you know, mm-hmm. and he also mm-hmm. you know he also uh, was sort of taught at the school of Guillermo del Toro to an extent. Guillermo mm-hmm. championed him, didn't he? Through he did, yeah. Yeah. through yeah. Uh, the orphanage at mm-hmm. Cannes, and that's a big big hit in Spain. That film. So he's not like he's a he's a newbie to making yeah. you know high pressure movies. And he's um, a smart cookie. He is. As any one of you, if you want to go back, actually, he was on the podcast um, when The Impossible came out. Had a big old long chat with him. Weirdly enough, I think he and Colin Trevorrow came into the pod booth in about the same week. I ended up doing, yeah. it was me and my own, and I did about 45 minutes with both of them. And they're both very, very sharp guys. And both have this, you know, we, we talked about this in the podcast before, but they're both they're both independent filmmakers who have uh, a big budget sensibility as well. Um, a bit like David Lowry as well, who this week was announced as the director of another Disney live action animation adaptation, which is um, Peter Pan. They're going back to the world of Peter Pan, which is a, a gamble, given how every Peter Pan movie has ended up. Well, every <laughs> Peter Pan movie pretty much has ended up. Um, Finding Neverland is great. It's not really a Peter Pan, though. Kind is, of. Is it? Kind of. But yeah, yeah. Uh, well done, Bayona. Uh, uh, how would I say that in Spanish? Bayona. No, 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 no. The well done. done. Oh. I know how to say his name. Bien hecho? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, <laughs> well done bit. Muy bien hecho. Okay. And if I wanted the steak well done, how would I say that? Um, Rostios okay. Maximus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, so racist. Sorry, okay. everyone. It's uh, Staying on the big films front, Willem Dafoe has apparently signed up for Justice League. And here here's the crazy the part. Dad. Here's the crazy part. Apparent, according to The Hollywood Reporter, he'll be playing a good guy. What he's even is up with that? He's played good guys. I know, he's played them very well. He's, he's a good guy. He is a good guy. I've he's never a, met him. Well, he came into the office that time. It was lovely. Did he? Yeah. Hang um, on, was I there? Possibly not. Okay. I don't keep track. But um, he was, and he was very nice. And uh, he did. Yeah. And uh, this maybe we're just experiencing a bit of you know disconnection because, of course, he was the Green Goblin uh, for Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, J.K. Simmons is apparently going to be playing Commissioner Gordon. Yes. In Justice yeah. League. Yes. So it's a little reunion. 
It is a little reunion, isn't oh, it? So they need, uh, they need Tobey Maguire in there as dark side, and yeah. then they'll be fine. <laughs> Tobey Maguire as dark side. <laughs> That'd be astonishing. Um, yeah, I like Willem Dafoe a lot. I do too. Yeah. Uh, he playing a good guy. That could be, who, could, who could he play? Who could he possibly play in that? Because he's not one of the Justice League, is he? He's one of the. He's like the Justice League's janitor. Who's the head of Star Labs in this world? Well, it's presumably John Morton, isn't it? Or would that be? Yeah, you would think, wouldn't he you? Could play Aquaman's trident sharpener. Yes, <laughs> net wrangler. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh, yeah, that's that's good casting. That's good casting, and uh, clearly the, the doomsday scenario. So to speak. We've had that already, haven't we? Yeah, we have that. But, you know, the people were, were talking about because Batman Superman doesn't look like it's going to get to a billion dollars and people mm. were saying, oh, would they push the filming back? Would they kick Zack Snyder off it? That clearly doesn't seem to be happening. So it's it's progressing apace. Uh, yes. Happening right now. Um, so, so, yeah, fingers okay. crossed. Fingers crossed. Some good trailers out this week. Yeah, there were. Well, some trailers. Weirdly, if you'd asked me which trailers I was... At the beginning of the week, which ones would have I'd love enjoyed, enjoyed the most... I think the Adam Sandler one would have come down low on the list. Mm-hmm. I quite liked it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the two overlooked all right. I mean, I know yeah. that the bar is reasonably low for the Adam Sandler Netflix sort of collaboration at this point. He is very much maybe that's a deliberate thing. for one, huh? Maybe that's a deliberate thing. They release a terrible one first, and then just to take the expectation away, yeah. the pressure, and then bam, the do over. It's like Jolie and comedy style. Some like it hot. Yeah, now we can really, <laughs> now we can really make some good movies. So uh, someone tweeted me the other day because we, we keep saying on the podcast that every time a trailer comes up, it's like, oh, why are we discussing a trailer on, a, on an audio medium? And uh, someone went, hang on, then. You shouldn't be discussing any films, really. So, yeah, good point. So let's, let's talk about the trailers. So, The Do-Over is the second Adam Sandler Netflix movie, which comes out at the uh, May 27th on Netflix, part of his four-film deal. And what's interesting about this trailer is, A, it made me laugh, which I was surprised by, and B, B did I say A first of all, or one? Hey. One, and then B. Um, <laughs> it's um, It seems to be a David Spade movie mm. with occasional Adam Sandler rather than the other way around, which, which surprised me. It looks like a bit of a twisted gonzo buddy movie in a, in a way so I'd expect them to spend quite a lot of time in the second half together because doesn't he isn't the twist that he's not who Spade's character thinks he is um, but yeah it um, I don't know it made me laugh I just I just yeah it made me laugh a lot fair enough you haven't seen it have you I haven't watched that one yet no I woke up this morning and thought I'm not going to start the day with an Adam Sandler trailer <laughs> I start every day with an Adam Sandler trailer but it, I mean it really helps there were exciting ones this week I mean The Magnificent mm-hmm. Seven uh, looked really entertaining did I it have David Spade with the bad moustache uh, no it didn't it had well I mean I think I had enough bad moustaches this week I saw everybody wants some um, <laughs> uh, there's the Jason, new Jason Bourne trailer that yep. is very promising indeed I'm excited about that um, I, I, I'm really intrigued to see what new shades they can they can find in this. Uh, obviously, smashing up Las Vegas in a very un-Jason Bourne style um, <laughs> is a is a new wrinkle. Great cast: Alicia Vikander and Tommy Lee Jones. But I'm I'm, I'm just mm. what is the story? It seems to be the same kind of like oh yeah. something evil from my past, and I'm got to figure out what it is. I'm going to punch people, which is great. I, you know, I love the Jason Bourne trilogy. I just wonder if it's something. Enemy of the State light. Come on, I'm come on, guys. Slightly we... worried about about it on the basis in... of that last trailer. It was just in Greengrass and Damon. We have to. Trust oh, absolutely, at this point. absolutely. The Magnificent Seven trailer is uh, is I don't know. It's, it, you know, I love the original, mm. but it looks. I don't know. It looks good, generic. but generic. Oh. cast. Good cast. Yeah, I know. Just, I don't know. We yeah. didn't see enough D'Onofrio, I didn't think, in that. No, so. no, we didn't. We didn't. 
A little um, bit too much Pratt, but maybe they're front-loading him to get people in the door. They are definitely front-loading Pratt. Front-loading Pratt. Uh, Denzel Bridge. Washington, Chris Pratt, good cast, Ethan Hawke. Peter Sarsgaard is a bad guy. It, it feels like he's a bit, a bit lighter and a bit more fun and boisterous. Yeah, it does feel a bit gritty, doesn't it? Gritty and grim and like any other sort of crime thriller mm. you might expect to see. Okay, so that's uh, pretty much all the movie news in the world uh, this week covered off. Uh, so it's time for this week's second guest. Uh, we're going to see him in next week's Captain America colon Civil War as James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. But first, the great Don Cheadle, for it is he. Steps behind the camera for the first time in all sorts of capacities. He produced, he co-wrote, he made the tea. Uh, to direct the Miles Davis movie, I'm not calling to call it a biopic because it isn't really a biopic, uh, Miles Ahead. And just to make things even more interesting for him, he steps in front of the camera as a tempestuous trumpet legend as well. Uh, he came at the pod booth recently and unfortunately wasn't allowed to interview himself. you got to let some things go, Don. So I did it. This is me talking to Don Cheadle. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Don Cheadle. How are you, sir? I am fine. How are you? <laughs> You're fine, but you've been working very hard. You've been doing a lot of interviews like this. Yeah, I've uh, been in a lot of rooms talking to a lot of people, but it's all good. You know, it's all for the love of the, the movie. So let's 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 do it. Which is very much a, a passion project for you. You've been attached to this movie in various capacities for what now a decade? A decade. That is the proper number. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> ten years. Ten years. Ten long years. Yeah. Um, uh, at what point did it start to really coalesce? Because it, it started as a sort of strange, almost uh, ephemeral idea that you would play Miles Davis. Yeah, it was something that uh, Vincent Wilbur and Miles' nephew mm. sort of uh, proclaimed uh, at rock and at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony of Miles Davis in 2006. Mm. And I met with the family subsequently and talked about ways to approach the story. And yes, I pitched something that was sort of I guess ephemeral is a word that we could use. Definitely not uh, standard, yeah. And and something that I thought would be a more exciting approach and feel like cinematic jazz in a way. Yeah. And you know they were on board. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there were several discussions, obviously, some come to Jesus moments that we had over the course of of, <laughs> of making this. Um, and you know there were fits and starts. We would be down the road with certain financiers and. Uh, they would ask us to reduce the budget and, and get the schedule down, and we'd do it, and then they'd pass. And it was just something that you know we did uh, over several years, and oh you know, I'd shot a series during this time, and put kids <laughs> to college, and you know, a whole lot of things. I've shot three Avengers movie with you know Marvel movies, uh, but ultimately, I think it really started to uh, the ball started to really roll uh, once Ewan signed on, and and we uh, were able to secure some critical financing. Mm. I mean, just to, uh, to go into that then, so the, the genesis of the project is uh, you, you come on as uh, someone who will play Miles Davis. Correct. Uh, was that a, a lifelong dream for you or was that something that just... Uh, Not at all. Yeah. It was nothing that I was ever attempting to do or had been a you know one of my bucket lists. It, 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 in fact, it was something that I wanted uh, to stay away from. Mm. any sort of a, a, a biopic, any sort of an iteration of some historical storytelling. Uh, I had done so many up to this point and was, you know, just being sent almost exclusively those kinds of scripts. Yeah. And I didn't want to get pigeonholed and I didn't, I, I, I didn't really want to play someone who was not from the time that I was living. Yeah, sure. And I wanted to, you know, be a modern human being. So uh, I was passing on all of them. Uh -huh. And then 
as I said, Vincent made this sort of uh, proclamation, and uh, I've said to the family, okay, I'll do it, but it has to be done like this. It has to yeah. be fire. It has to be inventive and, yeah. and feel spontaneous and yeah. be innovative like your uncle was. Yeah. Um, and once they said, yeah, and we're on board with that, I said, okay, fine. As soon as you have somebody who can write that and direct that, give me a call <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> I'll step in the role. Uh, but it became evident pretty quickly to everyone that that probably wasn't going to happen unless I took it, you know, in, yeah. in, into my own hands. And it's, it's a really uh, interesting, energetic, uh, very, very, very cool movie that, that doesn't do what biopics tend to do. Thank you. What I really liked about it uh, is the fact that you mentioned there, I think you said ticking boxes yeah. earlier on, and yeah. it doesn't do that. It doesn't go through Miles Davis' uh, life in a sort of cradle-to-grave way. Yeah. Uh, it's very impressionistic. Absolutely. Uh, can you talk about, um, I guess, that decision to, to do that, to render that, that style? I mean, you mentioned that it's influenced in, in, indeed by Miles Davis himself. And yeah. How I mean, he might have, um, for me, as an artist, the exciting things that when I read about Miles and when we did the research and talked to people that played with him and 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 the way that he approached his his craft and his art was always about taking risks mm. and it was always about doing the next thing and not repeating yourself and you know Herbie saying things like Miles told us that we were paid to rehearse in front of people you know <laughs> play what's not there fear no mistakes for there are none right. everything was about going into some unknown place uh-huh. and then figuring it out. You know, it's uh-huh. like, like Michael Jordan would jump in and then decide what kind of shot he was going to take. <laughs> and that's kind of how Miles approached things, you know, take a big swing. And, uh-huh. you know, if you're going to miss, miss big, but, yeah. but go for something. Don't be safe. So everything to me about that said, you cannot do some Reader's Digest version of his life. And, yeah. and things that we've seen before, you have to apply your own uh uh work and in your medium try to do what he did in his so Uh i took a lot of liberty in saying i'm going to take his story his music his path the man himself and sort of spread him on my palette Mm. and use that in the way that i want to to express myself with him as being my vehicle yeah and the family was like, yeah, I kind of, as much as we, that makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. At the end of the day, they were like, that's probably what he would want. Uh, yeah. He wouldn't want you to do it. I mean, and he's gone on record slamming certain films that he saw done in that sort of treatment that we're talking about, where mm. it's the Reader's Digest version of the cliff notes of their life. So yeah. don't do it that way. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the films that also have a, a, a real reverence for the subject exactly. and you feel that they're almost afraid to present the person you know in, in very very uh, stark terms that's right which is something you don't shy away from but miles davis right from frame one he's in your face yeah. and he's uh he's on this almost self-destructive path that's uh, right he, and he's, he's he's a very interesting character to spend some time with I and i think that in in you know for someone who didn't dodge those things about himself and was very upfront about it and very uh clear-minded about it and spoke about it, it you know in a way that was uh very revealing that to sanitize that or to try and somehow skirt those things you know i'd be sitting in this chair having people say why didn't you talk about this and why did you go around <laughs> that you know you can't win for losing in a way so i said as long as it fits the narrative yeah which was sort of this modal construct of 
this period of time where he was with Francis uh, played against this time where he was fallow and mm. and and trying to come back and figure out what it was what it was that he was going to say and how he was going to impact the world again. Mm. And that was the thing that he was accessing to do it. As long as it fit that narrative and we were focusing on externalizing an internal process, yeah. which inside there is all that, you know, regret and, and, and passion and fear and mm. anxiety and exaltation. All of that stuff yeah, yeah. had to be, for me, a part of the story. He's a, a very volatile character in the film as well. Um, the first time he meets Hugh McGregor's character, a journalist, he punches him in the face. Deservedly goes, so. Deservedly so. Uh, <laughs> Don't and stick your foot in my door and try to jam <laughs> your way into my life. You're getting socked. <laughs> I, I did wonder watching the film how Miles would fare in this situation where you're plonked into a room and various people are bought in and you're doing the same interview five or six I, times in a row. I, I don't think it would happen. I think there'd be maybe <laughs> half of one and then he'd bounce. <laughs> I mean, did you uh, did you draw upon? You've worked with so many amazing people uh, in your career. Did you draw upon uh, any of them for advice? Absolutely, you know, uh, and, and more than advice, it was just sort of observing the ways that they worked and, yeah. and knowing that specifically with a, a a film that was you know going to not only be constructed in this way, but that I was the center of as I was also trying to have a 10,000 foot perspective that what was going to be necessary was, you know, a best answer wins environment Okay, where we don't have hard lines between every single job. You know, there are times when my DP was going to have to take some of the responsibility of, of being the one to call whether or not we got the shot okay, and, yeah. and, and rely on people to, you know, and my scene partners to say we need another one sometimes, you know, and third eye those things as I was trying to do every step of the way mm-hmm. and not, you know, attempt to somehow micromanage all of these people who you've brought on to execute their jobs because initially you thought they were the right person to do it you know if they're in that seat let them do their thing and in in this movie with all of the things that i had to do sometimes you had to do a little more than what your job description was and and you know i i I hired people in the same way that miles cast you know hired his band members Mm -hmm. and that's what i wanted to do you know is put people in the chair and then let them let them play absolutely um Steven Soderbergh once said on the, I believe it was the Out of Sight DVD commentary, if you can put Don Cheadle in your movie, put Don Cheadle in your movie. Are I had you- to pay him so much to say that. <laughs> I'm so glad it got on the commentary. It was crazy. I'm like, 10K just to say that? He's like, 10K, dude. I'm like, well, here, take it. Does he get royalties? Does every time someone doesn't let now you oh, have to pay him God, five bucks? It's so deep. He's so greedy. It never stops. <laughs> I just wonder if you got that printed up on, on say, business cards and sent out to, <laughs> to people in Hollywood. <laughs> no, but the payoff is I, I can call him up and it's like on tap. He has to repeat it to whoever I, I, I put on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have more Miles Davis in you? Is there a Miles Davis cinematic universe? Well, we really, uh, we talked often about this. Stephen mm-hmm. Bagelman and myself who wrote this uh, when I pitched it to the the family the first time, I said, "Let's do something that it could be a sequel." You know, <laughs> we get we were taking a very sl- small sliver. You know, we could yeah. you know, Miles Davis was relevant for forty years and what he yeah. the way he uh, impacted music. So maybe there's an origin story, and you know, there's a sequel. The the, the working title of this movie for a long time was uh, "Kill the Trumpet Player Volume One." Oh, really? Yeah, because we wanted there to be more volumes. Why'd you change it? 
well, because uh, <laughs> everybody had to have a say. Okay, okay. I, lo- I love that title. Uh, yeah, I love the, I think the title is actually appropriate that it has now. Uh-huh. Um, and it was for me as much as uh, a title that was referring to something that he was, you know, something that he had played, a composition that he had written. It was kind of a command too, you know. Mm. I can. I always heard his miles ahead. You know. It was yeah, like, yeah. Go. Yeah. Let's go. Get out of here. Let's yeah. move. Not a person who stops necessarily. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. So so obviously you you've obviously got the uh, the Marvel movies as you said as well. You're going to be back in the country in a couple of weeks time. I think yes, talking sir. about talking about civil war. Um, yeah. I, it seemed looking at looking at your la- the last few years, it has been getting this movie made, playing Rhodey, House of Lies. Um, are you? What are you looking to do now beyond that? Now that Miles is potentially in the past, hibernate. <laughs> I, I want my five-year fallow period now. I think I've earned it. So someone one day might make a, a Don Cheadle biopic. That's right. That starts with the journalist. But I won't be in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have nothing to do with it. Who could possibly play Don Cheadle? Let's let Keith Stanfield play him. I think he did a pretty good role job in this one. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, what is next for you? Um, there are different things. You know, I've been really focused primarily on rolling this one out. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that it is out, uh, will be out wide on the twenty second. Um, things have started to percolate. Different, you know, projects have started to come forward some for me to direct some for me to be in some for me to direct and be in some for me to write you know it's all it's it's you know uh it, it's kind of a a nice time to not be jammed into something and have yeah. the 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 a, a little breath to, to try and you know trying to see where 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 it leads me okay and uh you say those projects might end up being directing jobs do you feel like a director now? I mean, is it, you know, you're, one, you're one film down. Um, Do you think of yourself primarily still as an actor? or I, 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 it's, I was thinking about that this morning. It's so interesting, you know, and, and so you get so sort of habituated as a journeyman actor, which I've been for so many years, to hit it and quit it. You know, we do these jobs and then we're done and we're unemployed. And, you know, there's this sort of... Uh, frenetic uh underbelly that most actors have and and a suspicion that at any moment somebody's gonna say thank you we're done and uh (laughs) go figure out how to be a plumber or something now because we don't want to see you anymore i think i think you're safe well that's that yeah i yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) grand i gotta let you go don jeetle thank you so much thank you pleasure that was Don Cheadle. We'll be tackling uh, Civil War in next week's reviews section. Um, we'll also be doing, as you might imagine, a spoiler special podcast with the Russo brothers, Anthony and Joe, and hopefully Mr. Marvel himself, Kevin Feige. Uh, so that's going to be very, very interesting. Look out for that after the movie comes out in the States. It opens on May 6th in the States. So we're aiming for May 10th, Monday, May 10th, for our Civil War spoiler special. You never know. Plans might change. Might get it up earlier. Who knows? Who knows? What evil lurks in the hearts of men. Uh, right. Uh, but that's start with Miles Ahead. Don Cheadle's starratorial debut in which Don Cheadle stars as Miles Davis. I almost said Don Cheadle for a second. <laughs> as Miles Davis. Uh, Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this has... Uh, this takes place after a sort of a, a, a fallow period, I guess, in... In Miles Davis's work, he after being incredibly prolific for most of his career, when we open the film, he's 
he hasn't released an album in five years. Mm. And uh, basically he's doing an interview with the journalist who asks him, why? And then we sort of uh, go on a journey uh, and sort of see a little bit of what might or probably hasn't, if we're honest, happened Mm. during the intervening period. It's a very uh, different approach Mm. to the music biopic and I think a good one because we've had Walk Hard and you can't go back and unring that bell so you have to find a new way to do things <laughs> and, and, yet, I, and, uh, and you and think yet. and I think you know this is uh, this is probably as, as good a way around it as any uh, so basically they uh, what, what follows is kind of a madcap Kind of a heist movie, almost. It's 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 kind of a yeah a, a search for basically a, a session tape that that Miles has recorded goes missing mm. uh, during an encounter with uh, a, a dogged and rather dodgy journalist played by Ewan McGregor, a fictional journalist as well, a fictional journalist. Mm. Um, and uh, and Miles and this journalist Dave Braddon set off to try and track down the missing tape uh, and all sorts of craziness ensues. Uh, yeah, so that doesn't sound like an obvious way to approach this, but I guess when your subject is a musical legend in a form like jazz, which he refers to as social music here instead, but hashtag social music. Hashtag social music. When he's uh, when he's a jazz legend and he's into improvisation and he's yeah. into reinventing songs, maybe that is the way to reinvent him. I agree. I mean. Um this is a weird, a weird experience for me with this movie because I enjoyed it as I was watching it, and I thought, yes, yeah, he takes some stylistic risks, some great cross cutting between periods. Um, he takes structural risks. He takes, uh, you know, and he does things that you shouldn't really do with a biopic, as as we discussed in the uh, in the interview. And I liked it enough. And I thought, yeah, this is this is fine. This is a, a very very fun uh, movie. And then I saw. Weirdly enough, later that day, another musical biopic that is as straight down the middle, as tick the boxes and as by the numbers as you could possibly hope. You mentioned Walk the Line there. This is a movie made in... I'm I'm sure the director of this movie, I won't say the name yet, um, hasn't seen uh, Walk Hard. Hasn't seen Walk Hard. Sorry, Walk Hard, not Walk the Line. Instantly, by comparison, this is a very rare experience for me, instantly by comparison, Miles Ahead became so much better. (laughs) <laughs> because it's so much more audacious and it does take risks and it's not entirely 100% successful all the time. But it it's fun and it's not a hagiography and it doesn't worship at the feet of Miles Davis. Obviously his music is in there and it, it, you know, it's very, very uh, unalloyed in this portrayal of him as a genius. But also a nutcase. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it. It's especially in retrospect. It's one of those movies that's kind of grown for me as I, as I watched it. I know a lot of people, um, it's got mixed reviews and stuff in the, in the, in the States particularly, but... I like what Don Cheadle was doing with it. Yeah, uh, um, I think uh, his portrayal of Miles Davis is, is excellent. The music's fantastic. Ewan McGregor's very, very, very good as his as his foil. Um, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, uh, we, we gave it three, but I'd probably go a little bit higher. Yeah, I might do as well. Actually, it's kind of stuck with me since I saw it, and, mm. and sort of keeps ringing around your head a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think it does. It doesn't always make sense and you won't kind of get what it's necessarily going for until it gets quite late into the movie, I think. Uh, but but ju- do stick with it and give it a go because I think it's um, it's it's beautifully... Fl- it flows beautifully through the film, I think. And yeah, there are bits which we do feel like we've seen before and we do feel like we've heard before. Yeah, a little bit, um, yeah. But at the same time, generally speaking, you know, a lot of these guys suffered the same problems so maybe there's only so much you can do to yeah, avoid... Yeah, absolutely. ...to avoid, uh, you know... Uh, Hitting them all with, but at with, the same time, not too many biopics. I think start with a, a car chase. That is true. Not enough 
Not nice. enough, anyway. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're you know, you're doing a bank robber biopic. Make many <laughs> bank robbers there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I yeah, I thought it was uh, it, it 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 beguiled me. It won me over. And also, I have to say, I'm not going to give anything away here. But the ending of the movie is one of the trippiest things since the Star Child sequence at the end of 2001. <laughs> it is just you kind of going, what is happening in this sequence? See what you think when you when you watch it. it it's, it's certainly it uh, it befuddled me. A little bit, but mm. in a good way. In a good way. Miles ahead. Three stars, which is a recommendation. Helen and I would go a little bit higher. Uh, and next up is uh, Jane Got a Gun, which is a long-delayed Natalie Portman Western, which famously mm. lost its original director, Lynn Ramsey. He wouldn't normally associate with a movie like this, and then Lynn Ramsey realised that, yeah, I wouldn't normally associate myself <laughs> with a movie like this. And so she left <laughs> the project... In uh, yes. I say fairly acrimonious circumstances, a few just a few weeks mm. before filming began. Yes, our lawyers have told us not to go into too much of the detail here, and <laughs> gossip, and speculate about what may or may not have happened. But yeah, nothing, nothing particularly good happened at the beginning of this movie, mm. and I think we were all following it and wondering whether it was even going to happen because Lynn Ramsey, who obviously impressed people with, we need to talk about Kevin, um, walked away pretty much on set. Um, yeah. There were an enormous number of uh, casting mm-hmm. uh, switcheroos, um, and it eventually settled on a cast that features um, Gavin O'Connor, the replacement director's warrior co-star, Joel Edgerton. Because Michael lo- Fassbender was on board, wasn't Fassbender he? Fassbender was on board. Mm-hmm. Um, Jude Law was on board, I think, at one point. Who's that? Jude I think Law, Jude yeah. Law was on board Jude at Law one point. was definitely going to be involved. Um, Hugh McGregor, who wants to be in every single film. Hugh McGregor is involved. Yeah, he's, in it this, he's in every isn't film it? this yeah. week, apart from the next one. And... And Natalie Portman, it's really sort of a film about Natalie Portman. She produced, um, so she, she stayed on board. She, yeah, she yeah. didn't walk, yeah, she started yeah. walking away. She's like, hang on a second. She replaced herself with herself. Yeah, it was a stressful movie by all accounts. And so you'd expect that to be a little rough around the edges when you get to see it on the big screen, or just a lot of people shouting at each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just tumbleweed on both sides of the camera. But... It's not really. It's a perfectly serviceable Western, um, generic, nothing we haven't seen down the years. And and the idea that you've got Natalie Portman playing a Western uh, strong woman um, protecting her homestead from uh, Ewan McGregor and his band of outlaws. Um, Ewan McGregor effectively playing Dick Dastardly in this movie um, <laughs> in heavy, heavy prosthetic disguise, um, having a great time just chucking the ham around um, as the bad guy, um, and uh, it's really enjoyable. It's 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 uh, sort of Henry Fonda in um, in uh, Once Upon a, sorry in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West meets Dick Dastardly. So there's a bit of there's a bit of mustache twi- twiddling going on, and Natalie Portman has to stand up to him using the help of her ex, oh, okay. her old flame, Joel Edgerton. So it's not that feminist because she does ultimately need help from a bloke, but she is a tough character nuggety and determined to defend her grievously wounded husband Noah Emmerich as he lies in bed. It's got some good set pieces. The Gavin O'Connor has a bit of a, a sense of the New Mexico landscape and it looks good mm. but it's really slow. It moves like molasses. Uh, there's bits where it actually feels like it's sort of stopped um, and so it doesn't really have the tempo and it doesn't ratchet up enough tension mm. for the third act kind of blast off to to really, you know, catch fire yeah um, um, compared to a film like Slow West even the Homesman had more of the sort of strong female character development stuff Slow West had a slightly kind of left field skew on the on the myths of the West this doesn't really bring anything new to the Western particularly um, and it's got its moments um, everyone's fine in it the cast is, is likeable and decent enough but it's just ponderous and I gave it 
we gave it two stars. I think that's right. I think it's it's fine, but just nothing feels new about it, and it should feel new. It should feel like it has a different energy to it, and I think that was presumably the original point, and presumably if then mm. Ramsey had made it, we'd get a little bit more of that kind of thoughtfulness. I think they were... It's almost like they were going for thoughtfulness and ended up in ponderance, and then <laughs> instead, so they decided to just make it more... Yes. You know, more westerny instead, more daring do kind of thing. Mm. And the I had major issues with the ending, which I just thought was a bit ridiculous. But I, I don't want to go into what those were because I would get into spoiler no, it's territory a silly very ending. fast. And I think you're right. It falls between trying to do something fresh and, you know, subvert some, some of the old western tropes and just becoming a generic kind of shootout exactly. western. Um, I think Slow West did that really, really well. Had a bit of mm-hmm. both, but they sort of gelled nicely i don't think they do here and it just falls between the two and just becomes a bit bland but you know i always want a bit of that chaos of the of the you know the origin of this film to play onto the screen because it's it just feels very stolid yeah that's exactly the word i'm very playing them for rescuing something from yeah. what must have been a very fraught situation yeah well it's you funny know. ewan mcgregor was saying because we we, we having him on the podcast in, in, in a few weeks and he was talking about how he came back from Son of a Gun in Australia mm-hmm. and got home and they literally were like, we need, can you come and do this now, like now, tomorrow? Um, he described it as the second part of his gun trilogy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he flew straight over to New Mexico and did the thing. I mean, they were clearly just, you know, at their wits end a bit, the end of the end of the tether trying to get this film made um, and they have got it made and it's okay. If right. I was on a plane and it was a really long journey, I'd watch it. But I'm not sure I'd pay money at the cinema to see this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two stars for Chain Got a Gun, which is not a recommendation. Okay, and next up, and very, very quickly, sadly, because uh, Tony Hadley is he's, he's doing that thing where he's pressed his face up against the window and he's he's breathing and he's he's trying to cock and balls in the breath on the window. That's really weird. He's not. <laughs> he's, he's not even there yet. But um, next up is Bastille Day, which stars uh, Lufa himself, Idris Elba, uh, cancelling the apocalypse. In Paris, in Bastille Day. It's it's basically generic action film, generic action thriller number three. You know the one, mm-hmm. that model. So that basically, uh, Richard Madden, formerly of Game of Thrones, much missed there, and Cinderella. Um, he plays an American pickpocket working and living in Paris. He steals a handbag from a left-wing activist, played by Charlotte Le Bon, um, and uh, abandons it because there doesn't seem to be anything of value in it. Little does he realise... That there was a bomb in it. So when the bomb goes off, he dis- he f- discovers that he has unwittingly killed four people. <gasps> and what's worse, a CIA agent played by Idris Elba, proving that he can be bombed, um, <laughs> is on his tail and will chase him down across the city. No, I will bef- chase you down. Ah, but you see, says. as you'll know if you've seen this, if you've mm. seen well the poster, yeah. they eventually figure out that no, it wasn't really Richard Madden's fault. He's too nice. He's Prince Charming. Come on. I will not chase you down. There you go. So the two of them have to work together to track down the real evil doers. I'll chase them down. There you go. So for some reason, everybody involved, including Kelly Riley, is American, given the fact that they're all British and there's no real reason that they should be American but they're all American <laughs> and they're all in France and it looks beautiful of course and there's some quite cool chases yeah. uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily rush out and see this having said that it's big driss it's big driss well you know it, the thing is like no one doubts he could physically be Bond I mean you know but this is a good audition tape if, if that were a he's too old to be Bond he's too old he's too that's old. the problem he's too yeah. old to be Bond uh, so anyway you know here we are he's there uh, and that's that's happening. And it's it. There, there are moments of fun. It's just it's not 
going to set your world on fire or indeed distinguish it, itself from any of the other mm. Paris set thrillers. So we gave it three stars. Three stars. I or personally might France? have... Uh, Trois étoiles. Okay. Yeah. Um, I personally maybe might have gone two, but I, I won't argue too hard against three. All right. And uh, nor should we. No, indeed. Because we don't want Big Drift to come in here. Oh, God, no. Right. Well, if Tony had these here as well. Cause <laughs> yeah. That'd be amazing. If they, if they would team up together as some sort of super band, that'd, yeah, be, that'd be cool. That'd be great. Lufa Ballet. Lufa Ballet! Gold! Right, okay, uh, that's it. Um, also out this week is Desert Dancer, which tells a true story of the uh, Iranian rebel, I'm going to call him, Afshin Gavarian, who uh, started the dance company in Iran, and that sort of underground dance company, and underground dance movement, that sort of thing is frowned upon. And then he, he defected from the country as well. So it's, uh, uh, we gave it two stars. Uh, it's got some nice moments of grace. Reese Ritchie's good. Uh, Frida Pinto's good. There you go. Um, and that is pretty much it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by the former Hulk, the former <gasps> Bruce Banner, Eric Banner, uh, who'll be here to talk about his Netflix movie, Special Correspondence, and the current Captain America, Chris Evans. yes. He'll be here to talk about Top Gear. Don't forget your toothbrush. (laughs) No, of course he won't be. That's just my little joke. Uh, He'll be here to talk about uh, Civil War. Uh, And don't forget to keep an eye out for the Civil War spoiler special, which is going to be, hopefully, all kinds of face. (laughs) We haven't recorded it yet. Um, But yeah, until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodle. It's goodbye from Phil. Cheerio. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to decide once and for all whether I'm Team Cap, Team Iron Man, or Team Lufa. See you next week. Bye.